You know, the person may have padded their travel expenses. I'm not trying to say it's not an important issue, but the war is, now think about it. This person has to go home to their family, right? And this is what, again, the people I just praised in HR sometimes are also part of the problem or their supervisor. You know, Janet, Marco, I'm placing you on leave because we're conducting an investigation. What in God's name are we doing? Why do we have to say that? So what I try to say to people is we're conducting a review. And some people might say, well, that's too soft. Well, I have to take that word investigation home to my family and say, listen, I'm on leave. Why am I at home rather than going to the office or the plant every day? So it's the words we use. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, hello, everyone. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and welcome to this episode of Difficult Conversations. I'm very excited to have another amazing guest today, Dr. Larry Barton. I've had the honor of knowing Larry for years. He's someone of a friend and a bit of a mentor, and I promise you that you are in for a real treat today. Dr. Larry Barton is one of the world's leading experts in crisis management and threat assessments. He currently serves as the Distinguished University Professor of Crisis Management and Public Safety at the University of Central Florida. Larry graduated magnum cum laude in speech and communication from Boston College. He earned his Master's of Arts in International Law and Diplomacy from Tufts University, and he continued his education at Boston University, where he earned his PhD in International Relations and Public Policy. Dr. Barton has the distinction of being named the very first ever Fulbright Scholar to Japan in crisis management. Prior to his current position, Dr. Barton served as president and CEO of the American College from 2003 to 2013. And for the past 14 years, Dr. Barton has remained the highest rated instructor at the FBI Academy and U.S. Marshal Service, where he teaches courses in threat evaluation to federal and state law enforcement. Dr. Barton designs strategies and solutions addressing workplace violence prevention and crisis mitigation. He is a frequent commentator on television networks during and after incidents of public violence for CNN, the BBC, and CNNBC and other news outlets. He is the go-to man. Larry is the author of four best-selling books on crisis response. His book, Crisis Leadership Now, was voted one of the best business books of the year. And his latest book, which I just finished reading and really enjoyed it, is titled The Violent Person at Work, The Ultimate Guide to Identifying Dangerous Persons, and is already a big hit. In 2018, Dr. Bart was named the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award from the International Security Management Association, the world's leadest organization of chief security officers. Prior recipients included the director of CIA, the director of the FBI, and the U.S. Secretary of State. That's quite a list. Larry, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you so much for accepting this invitation. I'm really very excited. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Tony, and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you know, each week I promise my audience two things, that they'll be inspired and they will learn something about communication, and I have no doubt that I'm going to keep my promise this week. So thanks again. I'll try not to let you down. (laughs) 
Well, Larry, you and I met about, I think about four or five years ago, and we have so much in common and you came over to see what I do with Breaking Bad News and wanted to observe. So you drove into Orlando and was one of our instructors. And for those people who don't know, our Breaking Bad News program trains young doctors on how to give tragic news to patients and families. And we use videotaped improvisational role-playing with professional actors. And Larry sat in and the other instructors looked at Larry and you were so nice and immediately had such amazing advice for the doctors, even as someone who's not a physician, because you're so good at having those difficult conversations. And we became instant friends and you've been giving me advice ever since. And so thanks for being kind of a mentor to me. Well, first, I think you really struck something in me, Tony, which I had never thought before, just as a civilian, if you will, that, you know, many physicians, and you taught me something, which was, and people don't think about this, but physicians are really not given an hour in medical school on compassion and empathy and death notification. Your specializations, you know, the curriculum is so robust in every other area, but when it comes to people skills, it's just something that you either have it or you don't, or you learn it or you don't. And you've brought that now to be really a center of excellence. So I learned from you just to, hopefully it's a two-way street. So thank you. Thanks, Larry. I want to talk about your books, specifically your latest one, but I really can't even start until we begin to talk about what's going on in the world today. And I'm sure that you are busier than ever. We have the COVID-19 crisis, which is worldwide. And the United States, we're experiencing some difficulties with racial relations right now. And Tensions are high everywhere. How has that really affected what you do? And your phone must be ringing off the hook. Well, it's very interesting. My phone was ringing off the hook until February in terms of daily, multiple calls regarding really my specialization, you know, people that are posing a risk, uh, suicidal employees, people that are on a performance improvement plan, someone who threatens to retaliate against their employer somebody who might be going through intimate partner violence and she's a victim and she's concerned that, you know, the husband is in the parking lot and may come in and basically shoot up the place. So workplace violence and threats is the heart of what I care about. And I would say, yes, the phone was going crazy in that realm until February. And then not surprisingly with people working from home for the most part globally, it was a dramatic shift to stress and fatigue and sleep disorders and people who could not process the new world of work. And so my practice, this is really bizarre. It's stronger than ever. And that's a, I don't like that. In other words, it's not a good thing to be able to say business is up. It's a different kind of business. I'm still dealing with the occasional difficult employee and the person who is mentally ill or dealing with some type of personal or professional stress, bullying. You know, you think about all the different situations. But I've had to really readjust my way of thinking, Tony, and support for employers in terms of dealing with fatigue and the caseload. And whether you're a supervisor in a manufacturing plant or you're working in a hospital, wherever you may be, you're an accountant, you're a real estate broker, you're, the way you look at work and the way that you're even dealing with your children and your personal life work balance, you know, we talk a good game about it. But we've had to relearn a lot. And candidly, I think we're at the first chapter of a very long novel. I don't think we're in any way even close to understanding the enormity, the gravity, and maybe the opportunity. And I like to, you know, I'm an optimist. I'd like to think this is an opportunity, but we have to look at it that way. What are we learning about 
the way we govern ourselves and our people. And you and I worked on a project, COVID-related, with some human resource people that are finding themselves in situations that they really never were prepared for. And we have a guest coming on shortly from human relations also. But from your point of view, what advice are you giving them? And how are the human resource professionals holding up during this COVID crisis? Well, before this call with you today, in this podcast, I had a call with the senior HR person for a huge company. And I will tell you what she basically said about her people is they've gone from being recruiters, worrying about compensation and benefits and performance reviews, to being caregivers, internal caregivers. They're actually calling employees, Tony, in the hospital saying, how are you? Because many people don't have, as you and I have, a spouse or a partner or a family. So for single people especially, it's a very troubling time, whether they're at home, possibly sick, symptomatic, or in a hospital. And regardless of that, a lot of people are just worried about their future. So human resource people are dealing with the uncertainty of will there be a job for me if the company or the nonprofit can even survive what they're going through. So HR is probably the greatest unsung heroes of this whole COVID process. Yeah, it's been very difficult. I think in years, if I talk to my human resource people, they've told me before the way they separated people from employment was very legal. They had to do it very particularly. Now, chief of human resources are now being renamed chief heart officers. And compassion is something that's becoming more and more part of their job, I would imagine. One of my favorite HR people in the country, she's in the hospitality industry, but they've renamed her chief people officer. And I just think that's a wonderful way to look at it, which is human is kind of distant, right? It sounds a little too formal and businesslike and Harvard Business School. But when you're a chief people officer, that kind of speaks to the compassion that you're talking about. My daughter works for a very large company in New York City, and they have a chief heart officer. And when she told me that was the name of her chief of human resources, I thought, that is great. What a great idea, because it really does really does show that the uh, employer cares. So that, right. that's awesome. Let's talk about your books for a little bit. You know, what I love about reading your books, and I've read the last two, is that although they're very informative, they're just not to-do books. This is how you should do this. Although Again, there's a lot of that in there. But what you do in your books is you tell real stories about real things that happen and show the consequences of what happens when you do it correctly and what happens when you don't do it correctly. And a lot of that has to do with the communication and how you deal with that crisis afterwards. So tell me how important in your mind is communication during the crisis and give us any advice that you can to someone out there who is dealing with a crisis. Sure. Well, part of this, I think, kind of parallels what you've done in the Arsini way. Communication is the heart. It's absolutely the dominant issue in terms, not always, but it's the dominant opportunity as to whether or not when you're giving somebody a performance review or you're giving them some kind of insight as to whether or not they'll take it well. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Many of the companies over the years, Tony, that I work with, and you know, I'm on call to them 24-7, sometimes they'll get on a call and say, hey, Dr. Barton, you know, we're currently pursuing an investigation of this person in accounting. And the moment I hear that, it's like kryptonite. I go like, I'm like curly from the Three Stooges. Whoa, I mean, whoa, I, I so want to say to them, like, what are you, NCIS? What are you, the FBI? You're conducting an investigation? You know, the person may have padded their travel expenses. I'm not trying to say it's not an important issue. But the words, now think about it. This person has to go home to their family, right? And 
this is what, again, the people I just praised in HR sometimes are also part of the problem or their supervisor. You know, Janet, Marco, I'm placing you on leave because we're conducting an investigation. What in God's name are we doing? Why do we have to say that? So what I try to say to people is we're conducting a review. And some people might say, well, that's too soft. Well, I have to take that word investigation home to my family and say, listen, I'm on leave. Why am I at home rather than going to the office or the plant every day? So it's the words we use. I'm talking about, you know, and this is the policies. And I think we've made a huge impact in the past couple of decades with many, many employers. Think about the handbook that you have at your place of employment, Tony, and many, right? Up to and including, what's the phrase? Termination. Hmm. Now think about it. That's one of the most offensive, outrageous phrases that we should ever have in a human resources manual where we talk about we're going to terminate you. And it's to me, that's like cancer. It's terminal. You may or may not come back, but it doesn't sound good. So I try to say up to and including separation. And people say, well, again, that's kind of soft. Well, you know what? Separation is a hell of a lot better. If you're in a headline or God forbid that person comes back with a gun or a knife or retaliates or engages in self-harm, you know, I would like to think that when you are in front of a jury or in front of just your own conscience, that you review the inventory of words you use. So communication, the way you speak, the way you give them an opportunity to hear and process, to not be routine, to not go through a checklist, to actually give somebody a fair hearing before you make a decision. That's how you reduce the opportunity in their interest in retaliation or even just bad-mouthing your company. So even if you're not interested in workplace violence and you, how many people, you know, nobody comes to work thinking someone is going to be violent today, right? Nobody ever has come to work saying somebody's going to shoot up the place or do something outrageous. Think about, rehearse, take your time. Those are qualities of communication. In a previous episode, I interviewed Kathy Caprino. And Kathy Caprino is a life coach for women. And she has an amazing story. She was a senior vice president at a big firm. And after 9-11, before 9-11, her president told her to go ahead and buy a, a big house because she's got a great future. So she did that. And then after 9-11, she was one of the vice presidents that they decided to let go. And the words that she remembers is her boss telling her, this hurts me more than it does you. And when I speak to physicians about breaking bad news, tragedy, cancer, I explain to them that at that critical moment of their lives, that person is going to remember every little thing about what you said, your body language. And I want to talk about body language in a second, but they'll recall everything. And that one phrase or the word termination will stick with them forever. And so, you know, many years later, Kathy keeps remembering that. This boss said it hurts me more than it hurts you. She just bought a big house. I doubt it really hurt him more. Sure. <laughs> right. But you know, your whole point here, Tony, is really important for people to understand, which is you do recall that years and decades later, the way you were treated. Was it done with compassion? Was it genuine? You know, I try to really focus on authenticity. And I'm very blunt in saying to people, you and I were given the gift of intuition at birth. Your mom and dad gave each one of us intuition at birth. What happens in the workplace is we tend to tune it down. We just want to get back because we've got the badge, we've been vetted, you know, we're part of this community. We can. But guess what? If your intuition kind of says this isn't going well, or when Kathy was told this hurts me more than it hurts you, if her intuition was what a phony, 
might be a really nice person, but that statement is a phony. It's just not believable. That can turn a really wonderful, trusting relationship. I'm not sure it's into a toxic one, but it's into one that certainly will never be the same. Yeah, I mean, and that's how you lose friendships. It's how you lose people in your family that you love. You know, why, why do brothers and sisters stop talking to each other, right? Why, why do we cut off neighbors? It's because of that one moment in time where we just didn't manage it properly. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect Six Sigma 24-7, but you can't screw up the big ones, right? Yeah, I'm going to quote your latest book. And you wrote, I quote, it sounds menial, but in the midst of this crucial conversation, the words chosen and even in the way a person is escorted out of the building, are subsequently cited by violent offenders as something they recall as a key determinant in why they assaulted a supervisor. Their recall can be uncanny. In other words, an ounce of prevention. Amazing thought. I think that's dead on. So I want my audience to be inspired and to learn something. So what advice do you have to the the leader out there, the manager who has to separate an employee, what do you tell them? Give me just a few do's and don'ts. Sure. I think it's a couple of things. One would be, and we're talking here not about the routine, right? We're talking here more about where, again, back to intuition, your gut basically says this person may or may not take the news well. And it might be because of past infractions, their attitude, something they've put on a blog, whatever it may be. But your gut kind of says this is not going to be a routine separation from the company, or even if it's not a separation, it's a timeout. You know, we need you to go home for a few days and cool off while we conduct our review. So a couple of things I try to say to them is first, rehearse. Rehearse the conversation. Don't assume that this is going to be a routine conversation because it's likely not going to be. And that's where you can kind of remind yourself of some of the words to emphasize, such as your employee assistance program, such as I encourage you to reach out to me, but I'd like you to do it between 2 and 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And people say, well, Larry, why would you give them a time? Well, one of the reasons we learned, you know, you steal this from psychology. If you say to an employee, you can call me anytime in the next few days, but please do it between 2 and 4, that's a test, Tony, of compliance. Are they going to be a compliant person and respect boundaries? But if they start leaving you voicemails or calling you at 7 o'clock in the morning, that's another indication that this is probably not going to have a good outcome. So first, rehearsal. Secondly, kind of set boundaries as to who can do what during this period of anxiety. And the third, and this is the, what you mentioned in the book that's gotten a lot of attention, because I interview offenders. I actually interview people that have become violent, and I interview them in prison, interview them as part of my work with the FBI and elsewhere, is that they do recall, and this parallels your work in terms of what you do with physicians, they do recall the manner in which they were treated. And so, for instance, let's say you worked at a facility 30 years and they've made a determination that because you sexually harassed someone or bullied or racial slurs or whatever it may be, you're, you are being separated. Can I go back to my locker? Can I go back and get the things on my desk? Well, the time to sit there and fumble is not in front of the employee. Think about it in advance and have a process, right? Which might include, you know, Carlos, I'm sorry, we do not allow that, but you have my promise. I will package up everything in your desk or in your locker, and we will have it delivered to you within the next day. Telling them that and telling them who will be accountable because they don't want some fumbler to be going through their personal things. You've given them accountability and you've told them how it will be delivered. So that matters. Also, if you do walk them out of the facility, how that's done, right? Think about it. If it's done at shift change, when you have 300 people coming into the facility, 
you've just humiliated them, not just personally, but in front of an audience. It's like a mini theater. So how you do it, where you do it, what you say to them. And from a safety perspective, one more, and I'm sorry for the long answer, but this is the heart of keeping people safe, will be if you are worried, if your intuition says this person could be violent to themselves or to someone else, while you're conducting, think about this, while you're conducting this conversation, have someone go out in the parking lot and kind of walk around their vehicle. Just walk around it gently. Because I don't know if in the back seat there could be a rifle. There could be a Bible. I mean, there could be, they could be living in squalor. What if this person is literally living in their car? So that kind of soft intel can be very helpful. But when you have a security guard walk them to the vehicle, just remember you're putting that guard at risk if they reach into that vehicle and grab a pipe, a baseball bat, or something else. So those are just a few quick top of mind ideas. That's great advice. And in medicine, in my world, even when there's a medical error that occurs, If we teach the physicians how to discuss that medical error, how to be genuine, go in there with a plan. You talked about having a plan and have your answers ready. It's amazing to me how many people that I've trained that I said, what was your plan when you went into that difficult conversation? I don't know. I I didn't have a plan. Like, how could you not have a plan? Like, you want to, even if it doesn't work out, you should have something ready. But it's amazing how many people don't have a plan. But How you discuss a medical error can make the difference between a lawsuit or, in some cases, a hug. Right. And hospitals and lawyers sometimes get this all wrong. There's a medical error. The doctor's told that he has to be honest or she has to be honest. But he or she walks in with risk management, the legal team, the CEO of the hospital, and the patient's looking at them like, what is going on? And I've given advice to risk management in hospitals before, and I said, Listen, I know you want one of your representatives there, but if you walk into my room as a patient with six guys wearing suits, I'm going to say, oh my God, what just happened here? (laughs) But if a physician walks in and says, listen, I got to be honest with you and says it in a compassionate manner, that patient is much less likely to be super angry to file for malpractice lawsuit or everything worse. So It's amazing to just have a plan, right? That's the biggest advice. Yeah, you nailed it. I'll tell you one strategy that your listeners can definitely steal. And this is part of the whole reason that I think your program has real value. I do a lot of work in retail and we've done, I think, a a great service to the, you know, think about a customer service desk at a Target, a Walmart, a CVS, whatever it may pick a retail. Those people get abused every day. I mean, they they just, they are slammed. They are body slammed. They are verbally slammed. I've tried to encourage them their leadership to allow them to say the following sentence. And it's going to sound a little awkward, but just stay with it. And I think your listeners will get it. 20 years ago, if you and I went into one of those retailers, Macy's, pick it up, you were just losing it, right? That person basically did have to take it, but they weren't allowed to say anything, right? Now we are encouraging them to say, I'm sorry you feel that way, ma'am. Now think about that for a minute. I'm sorry you feel that way, sir. Now, a lawyer... And I've had a lot of, you know, a lot of battles with lawyers. Oh, Larry, we can't say we're sorry. Oh, really? Well, guess what? You're going to really feel sorry when that person has their cell device that you didn't know was on and you've got a really toxic person on the other side of the counter. Let's empower them. There is no, no acknowledgement of guilt when you say, I'm sorry that you feel that way. So this parallels what you just said. You're not saying, I'm sorry that we screwed up the appendectomy right? Or we cut out the wrong artery. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a big liability issue with that, but there's no liability in saying, I'm sorry for the way that you feel. That is an act of goodness. That's an act of compassion. And guess what, Tony? When people do it, they have come back and reported years later, literally the number of incidents and blowback and compliance calls, people calling corporate has gone down. And in fact, a number of people will say to that person, wow, that's nobody, nobody has ever apologized to me. Thank you. So it kind of ends it. It takes away part of the sting. That's probably the biggest piece of advice that's going to come out of this interview today is say you're sorry. Yes. Medical errors, even when a patient dies and doctors were told when they were in medical school not to say you're sorry, it could be natural causes that you're not saying you did anything wrong. And in medical errors, even if it was something that you did wrong, you, you cut off the wrong leg. Yeah. It's okay to say, I'm sorry the system broke down. I'm sorry that this happened. And in fact, in many states right now, the words I'm sorry can't even be brought up in court. It's not part of the litigation because we've seen that patients cope better short-term and long-term and are much likely to sue if someone just says, a lot of people sue because, and they're in the courtroom and they're saying, I just wanted someone to say they were sorry. You're going to find this not amusing because you know me pretty well, but I, every morning I wake up and I say to my wife, you know, well, good morning. And then I say, I love you. And then I say, I'm sorry. And the first time I did this going back 17 years, she's like, what are you, what are you sorry? You're saying you're sorry for, I said, because whatever I do today, I'm already <laughs> absolved by saying I'm sorry. Okay. So you got to have a little levity with this. You have to be able to say it and to, you know, for a situationally mean it. And but also understand that this is part of the compassion that you're talking about. Saying I'm sorry for how you feel, it just diffuses a lot of anxiety that's out there. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. You know, neuroscientists tell us that our hindbrain, our ancient brain, makes millions and millions of assessments on someone's body language per second. That in less than a second, you've already made an assessment of someone. If you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Blink, he calls these slices. They're split second decisions that you make about someone, usually they're correct, not always. And they really depend on the body language and the message that you're receiving non-verbally. When you train people on how to speak to people during and after a crisis, how much of that do you go into? Do you go into their body language, tell them to sit down, things like that? The answer would be no, not the way you just described it. And I'm glad you asked because I think your listeners will really appreciate this. It's not really about trying to read a person. Who does that best would be police officers, it would be interrogators, it would be those that are conducting formal, authorized investigations. What I'm more interested in and try to help people would be where to sit. In other words, before you bring someone in, as you do in in a physician's capacity, but in an employment setting, when you preset yourself at the edge near the door with your paperwork so that the employee you're talking with, giving counsel to, maybe promoting, maybe demoting, have them be further away from you. You don't want them at the opposite end, all the way down the end of the table, because that obviously is offensive. But the point is pre-setting the room, thinking about having an exit strategy. If back to intuition, you think that it may not be a positive, the person might slam their fist, might yell, might turn the table over. That's why having security around the corner discreetly, if need be, to intervene matters. So I'm into more of the situational safety aspects as opposed to reading people. I'll give you a 10 second story uh, about reading people that has nothing to do with rancor, but I think might be of interest to your listeners. But this is kind of, a, it's one of my moments when I watch somebody do exactly what you're talking about. 
maybe uh, eight years ago, I hosted a, a huge banquet at the Kennedy Library in Boston, Presidential Library. And the guest speaker was Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. And she was the former lieutenant governor of Maryland and really smart person. I'd never met her before. Now, the audience, this is important to the story. She's coming in, getting all ready to talk about, at that point, Obamacare and what was going on with national health care. She had her whole presentation. But this was a big black tie banquet and about 400 people. Well, she comes in and she realizes at the cocktail hour, because of one comment by one person, oh, my God, this is mostly a Republican audience. And it was. It was mostly a conservative audience. Now, she turned to me and she goes, oh, my God, are most of these people conservative? And I said, uh, yes, they are. All right. She put her notes, which were in her pocketbook aside. This woman got up 20 minutes later and she just talked about winging it. She did a winging. And it was the most amazing, authentic, genuine, because she talked about nothing that she anticipated talking about. She <laughs> talked about Rose Kennedy, her grandmother and the rosary. She talked about living in a Kennedy household. She talked about, you know, what they had to eat and not eat. She talked about the levity of family and the importance of love and compassion. And the point is she did a complete about face. And I love that because she read the whole audience by one little slice of a couple of people. And as she looked around, she was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a complete disaster. So there's different ways to read people, and it's not always one-on-one. I mean, why does an entertainer, why does a singer, Frank Sinatra, who I, you know, I had the privilege to watch him eight times in concert, you know, why would Sinatra before every, and we're going back to the Paramount in 1940, all the way back into the 1980s, why did he always peek around, and you've got video of him doing this, why did he always peek around the curtain before even Frank Sinatra, right, the most consummate performer ever, why did he peek around the curtain? He wanted to read the audience. That's a really insightful, to me, slice of just being human. That's a great story. I didn't know about that. That was, that's a great story. Yeah. So, you, you know, we talked about having a plan, but there's a great example of sometimes your plan's not ready and you have to change it quickly. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. right. Exactly. And in medicine, I do that. Sometimes you, you walk into a room and we're going to have a, an episode on program P-R-O-G-R-A-M and the O stands for observation. And you have to walk in to a room and you have to say, okay, I had this plan, which you have to have it, but this is not going correctly. You know, sometimes I'm unfortunately have to give bad news to a parent about their child not doing well. And the parent reading the parent and and he or she is smiling. Right. And my intuition says, okay, they're not getting this. We need to start over again, or I'm giving good news and they start to cry. So you have to think on your feet. I think that's a great story. So. I know you're, you're a busy man, but I want to talk about your book, your newest book, and what people can expect. I already read it. It's awesome. And to my surprise, I was in it, which I... Yes. <laughs> you, you trick, you, I think you tricked me because you said, I told you I'm reading the book, but you didn't tell me. And I, I think you were probably testing me to see if I <laughs> said, oh, the book was great, but didn't mention that I was in it. I, you probably would have said, oh, he, he's lying. He never read it. So. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it was two years of work. And I... A lot of people don't understand how much time goes into writing a book. It, it is, and especially this kind of book, a business book, because it's filled with facts, right? So the fact checking as opposed to a novel, which can go in any direction. But when you are writing a business book about cases of caring for people, litigation, security, human resources, just the governance of people and being good to people and also being prepared for crisis management and business recovery, and you better know your stuff. So it took two years and a lot of fact finding. But it was a journey that I loved because 
30 years ago, I was not very interested in violence at work. My background was really focused on crisis management, you know, the storm, the hurricane, the earthquake, the issues of any calamity that could disrupt a business. But about 20 years ago, I really started to move into this journey because of the Postal Service killings and many other issues that were happening in society. And because with the prevalence of guns, we just saw more people acting out with school shootings and houses of worship, et cetera. So to make a very long story short, I've really spent 20 years now deeply looking at victimology. Why are people injured at work? Why do people become perpetrators who are wonderful employees and very good people? But why did they turn? And I'm trying to understand and demystify for the reader, because to your point, I'm not a physician. I'm a behavioral scientist. But I try to really demystify what is mental illness and understanding why we have counselors and why sometimes people need time off. And those words that we talked about earlier and how you use them appropriately and helping keep an employer safe. But we lose two people a day on average, Tony, in the United States. They're killed at work by coworkers. Yeah. In the midst of COVID, nobody's talking about that. But, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've had three shootings in three different workplaces. One of them was at a hiring event. Okay, it wasn't a retaliatory issue of, you know, just uh, ex-employee. It was just at a hiring event. So. It's really trying to help people understand, and we've tried to unlock the reasons why people become angry, how you can diffuse them, and just be a better employer and stay safe. That's ultimately what it's about. That's fantastic. And I really did enjoy it. I love the stories. That's the best part of it because, you don't, like I said, it's not just do this, don't do that. And it just makes it real. It's interesting you say that because I would say, you know, you get a lot of feedback from readers, right? The one story in that book that Probably more people than anyone has, has said to me, hey, Larry, I have either forgotten or didn't know that story is actually about a psychiatrist in Seattle. And we won't get into it here, but it's the story of somebody who is very well vetted, highest credentials you could possibly imagine, incredible, impeccable pedigree as a professional, and yet who was a very deviant and a very disturbed individual. So helping to understand that it can be people in all walks of life right? Not necessarily who's down and out. People in all occupations can be deviant. And to try to understand that psychopath, that sociopath, or just that individual who is on a journey of evil is an important one for us to discuss. That's great. And your book is available right now on Amazon and other outlets. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it, Larry? Sure. Absolutely. Just write to me. My email is Larry at LarryBarton.com. And I'll be glad to hear from all of your listeners. Happy to. Well, thank you so much. I am really honored to call you a friend. And I am very excited that you agreed to do this. I know that you are extremely busy. So for you to take an hour out of your time to speak to my audience, I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do for all your people, Tony. Great to be with you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button and leave a review and download more episodes. We have some great guests uh, every single Tuesday. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. And once again, thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.